Welcome to Building Tomorrow, a podcast about tech, innovation, and the future. Something I've been spending a good bit of time thinking about recently is just how little we truly know about COVID-19. And that means how little we know about how we ought to respond. The scientific method, it takes time, time that a pandemic doesn't allow. We have to respond first based on our best guesses and verify later. But now that we're a few months into the pandemic, we have more data, more studies, more science that is allowing people like economists, like our guests today, to start making guesses about which government interventions are worth the cost to the global economy. Is social distancing, general shutdowns, mask wearing, and and so on, is that worth the cost? But asking those questions requires first putting a price tag on what a human life is worth. That may sound like an unpleasant topic, but it really is necessary. We live in a world of limited resources, meaning that we can't do everything. We can't make our lives perfectly safe, no matter how much we might wish otherwise. And so the question is, how can we get the most life-saving bang for the literal buck? To answer that question, I've asked friend of the pod and fan favorite Peter Van Doren, or the notorious PVD, as we call him in the office, to join me. Peter's the editor of Regulation Magazine at Cato and knows more about the economics of government regulation than anyone else I know. But to start, and this will give you a fly-on-the-wall sense of what Peter and I's impromptu chats in the office are like, uh, we discuss the arbitrariness of our cultural memory, including how little we remember about prior pandemics. You're a historian, and so that's that we can talk about. <clears throat> I'm, I'm hearing a lot of... of we'll never forget, right? And as I dig through history, since I never took it, uh, I'm always amazed at how much we do forget. <laughs> yeah. And maybe professional historians do not, but the older I get, the more I realize there aren't really any new problems. There's just old problems that resurfaced somehow we forgot about. And uh, so on, yeah. the, on the pandemic side, I was 13 years old in 1968, and, and the Hong Kong flu killed 100,000 people in the United States. Well, that's, that's not, that's more than the normal flu. And at the time, U.S. population was much lower. And yet, not only, so I asked Catherine, she's three years older than me. So she was, you know, 16 in 1968. And does she remember? And the answer is no, neither of us remember anything about it. What we remember about in 68 were Dan Rather on getting beaten up by the Chicago cops and the Democratic Convention and the cities burning. and But Hong Kong flu just somehow, oh, I, I mean, so if you're a younger person asking me, what is the wisdom for my youth and pandemics? I ought to remember something about that. And yet I don't, I don't, uh, I don't remember it even being discussed. So well, could be because like, I grew up in the boonies, but. Uh. Well, and like so many of these, these topics, it's when it does get uh, remembered, it's in order to score political points in the present, right? So the Hong yes, Kong the, rem- the remembering isn't uh, for, for, you know, I try to be neutral and I think science ought to be neutral. And we've discussed that in the past. And yet, 
most of the time it really isn't, is it? It's like knowledge is a weapon and it, and it, and history. I mean, I guess historians vary. I assume you were taught how you, you get educated in schools of thought and then your, your training probably varies in how neutral or how aggressive it was. And maybe there's some departments that try to be really, really neutral, but my guess is they don't do well in history. History may not be about that. I mean, and you can tell me what, uh, yeah. You know, well, well, one of the, the history do, of pandemics or something. One of the things we do learn, and, and we can just get into it here. I mean, one of the things you learn in graduate school in history is that there is no such thing as, as full, complete, platonic, idealized objectivity. The objectivity is a, is a, is a myth, an idea. Now, it might be also an ideal that's worth striving for, but you're never going to arrive at perfect objectivity because you you are this bundle of biases and prejudices that even if you attempt to uh, restrain them, to examine, to, to you know, introspectively examine yourself and you know, rid yourself of your biases and whatnot, you you can't. There's some that are are you know, I don't buried in your subconscious that are are. Um, you know, uh, our reactionary ticks that you, you can't right. completely eradicate. And that's, and but that's fine. You, you, you might do your best. You try to be fair. Uh, you, you don't have, but uh, get rid of the pretense of complete objectivity is something you learn in graduate school and be aware that all history and all historical work makes choices. You choose what information to make salient and what information to leave silent. And notice how different that is than I would think graduate training in biology or chemistry or physics. I mean, the, in other words, the where there's an intersection of medicine and history. Um, so medical historian, I mean, the, and certainly my training was uh, economics tries to make believe it's more like experimental science, right? And that there are parts of it. And, but, what you describe as a fundamental aspect of your training certainly wasn't, uh, I don't think is not what your average science PhD student would, they wouldn't talk about that much, if at all. Mm, mm. I guess it's instead, right? it's, there's a truth out there and we'll use the scientific method to arrive at the truth with a capital T, uh, I guess. Yes. Um, I mean, and that, yeah. and that science is a conversation among people. Uh, using either experimental method or statistical inference to try to get at something called the real world out there. And John Samples and I talk about that a lot. He was always saying that I was, and I forget, I don't know the names of the, but he said I was, this, I represent a certain kind of way of looking at the world where I think it's actually out there and can be discerned. And, um, in other disciplines, one does not, that's not the goal. And people are taught early on that it's not even possible, I think is what you're, what you're saying. So that there's a divide right there. Just because in the historians, even today, we, we debate about to what extent the, um, uh, you know, this, this thing out there, that's the real history with a capital H to what extent we can access it or should be trying to access it. So we, we do debate over that. Um, but it's not to say that there isn't something there, there, there is a there, there, you know, there, there is history <laughs> okay. that happened. Um, but what historians do is not necessarily 
we're not chroniclers. We're not just trying to, you know, um, you know, like the medieval chronicles where you wrote down you know, in, the, in the doomsday book. Um, today, the harvest was this. Today, the weather was this. Just fact after fact after fact. We're telling narratives. And so it's it's about why things happened. And the why of a thing happening is kind of fundamentally harder to access than the what. Um, so if it was just a matter of what happened, then, well, then you can get the there that's there is easier to get to. Because like what, you know, and the more specific, the easier it is. So what, what buttons, what material, what metal went into the buttons of the 34th Regiment of the 1st Infantry Division? Well, I can tell you, you can find out that fact and you can ascertain it the high degree of certainty, like scientific level certainty, right? Find all these documents. They wore brass buttons. Um, but what does that mean? Like what's wh – wh who? I mean who cares? Like what's the purpose of that? What is the value of that right. factual observation? Very little. I mean, it's not to say there's none, but very little. It's the you know why question that's, that's more interesting and valuable and more subjective. Um, you know, cause you could make a thing about the, uh, inter, uh, crop transatlantic transfers of metallic substances of, you know, global trade and of brasses. I don't know. I'm just making right, stuff right, up right, right here, right. but it's, that's the harder. So historians are taught to kind of, we're not taught that there's no there, there, there is something, there is an object of reality. There's stuff that happened in the past. But we can't know it perfectly, and you shouldn't. It's dangerous to pretend that you can always know it perfectly, and that pretense. And, and sometimes, yeah, historic. I mean, um, I do get frustrated in the more scientific in the scientific fields where it's not that they're wrong. You know, there is scientific data that that's out there that can be accessed that's real with a capital R. But there's also a lot about science that is in this kind of subjective realm like what does it mean that when you eat eggs it has this effect on your cholesterol level or doesn't like wh what does that mean is that information that should be made silent or salient like how imp relative importance of that thing that's factually true uh who should that be communicated to who benefits from that information being communicated to none of that is that is all like that's the humanities realm right there and and Scientists often ignore the fact that – ignore that stuff that's going on around their pursuit for some sort of, um, you know, true fact. And I, I, I guess uh, economics, it kind of exists in that middling space between history yes. and, and yep. science. Since we're talking about economics and – you know, you've been thinking through COVID-19, I think, in a different way and its ramifications for American society and 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 the economy, the future in a different way than I think the average bear. I mean, given your background and, and training. So one of those things, and, and you sent this to me before we recorded, which was a paper that you and uh, a blog post, I should say, with Jeff Murin and Ryan Bourne about the value of living. Um, which that title might make our listeners think that, you know, we're into the dismal science at, at its dismalist. Like, what is the value of human life? How much? Let's put Correct. a price tag on we lives. Um, which actually isn't dismal. It's actually a, a hopeful thing. I, we, we can talk about that. But so what is a life worth and why does that matter in a time of a global pandemic? 
Well, economists, what economists try to remind everyone of is that there are limits, that there's a budget constraint, there are limited resources. And so the heart of economics is trying to figure out how much of anything to do. And you need to know what pre- what people's preferences are about things, how much they value things, and then what is their budget constraint. So in health, uh, the question is, how much is, how much should society expend to save people from, in, in the current context, uh, an infectious disease and the, the consequences of that infectious disease where once one has it, the ability of medicine to do something about it is more limited than with other medical issues that we face. Um, so there's, there's no miracle cure right now. There's only palliative efforts within hospitals to try to keep people alive involving ventilators and things like that. But basically, um, you're on your own with some medical technology. And the results, the death rate for have, particularly in, in, in New York's, in the Northeast Corridor has been, um, a lot of people have died from this disease. So then, uh, the, the, how should we value, how much should we be willing to spend to try to avoid these consequences? Or said differently, is a shutdown, are lockdowns and shutdowns and, and in effect, mandatory recession, something that countries don't, you know, countries don't usually induce recessions through policy. Um, they happen and we have discussions about why they happen, but uh, leaders of democratic countries don't usually shut countries down because that reduced income is very large. And so the question is, why are we doing that? And the answer is to save life. And so the what economists try to think about is, hmm, all right, what do we know about in market settings? How much do, how risk averse are people when they face risk? How much do they seem to be willing to reduce their own income to avoid risk? Or in turn, how much uh, do they demand in compensation in market settings to face risk? Yeah. And it, from from that uh, market calculation, we then come up with a number about how it appears in those small little trade-offs that people face in daily life, how much people in market settings seem to value a reduction in risk. And that, when scaled up, becomes what we call the value of a statistical life. Well, I was struck in your uh, post about, I mean, you had two nice illustrations um, of what you're talking about. You gave uh, one example, which was um, the cost of making lighters, like for lighting a cigarette or, or something else, uh, of making them childproof. Like, what does that cost per, you know, that means fewer children will set themselves in their houses on fire and kill themselves. So how many lives are saved by mandating some sort of mechanism on these, you know, big lighters um, versus how much uh, I forget some sort of carcinogenic compound or something that is restricted by OSHA in a workplace. And for one, Correct. it was, it was like a hundred thousand, a few hundred thousand dollars per life saved with the big lighters. And the other, it was billi- billions. Was it? 
billions of dollars yes. per life saved. Lots, tens of billions. Lots of lots of money. Yeah, and, and so and, the the traditional context in which VSL, uh, which is the econ acronym for a value of a statistical life, the context in which VSL has been used before before the pandemic was evaluating various health and safety regulatory initiatives, uh, mostly in workplaces, but sometimes in, in the environment as well for the public as a whole. How much is it worth to reduce exposure to said thing through regulation? Um, and, and, and again, the, the examples are guardrails, guardrails. Uh, you now live in New Jersey. The, the most famous one is the Jersey barrier. Right in New Jersey, uh, basically on arterial roads, um, you can't turn left. Right, there's a barrier in the middle, and you have to go to a light or a, a traffic circle and get to cross a major road. You just can't turn left. And New that Jersey saves lives. This. Oh, right. it saves. A, I mean, a lot of people die in traffic, and New Jersey's dense. New Jersey has lots of traffic, and so the New Jersey invention that's really saved a lot of lives is in effect banning a lot of left-hand turns uh, in the, the so-called Jersey barrier that separates uh, traffic on, on arterial highways that's going at, at 60 or 65 miles an hour. So those implements, or those regulatory measures are very cost-effective per life save. Mm -hmm. And, and Some that's of the, why this so, is... This is, that's why this is such a – it's not a dismal observation. It's actually very hopeful because it's – it's the goal is to – you know, there's there are, there are finite resources. Um, and so the question is how can we most effectively spend those resources in order to save the maximum number of lives? So it's Correct. about life Correct. preservation, life uh, extension, saving lives. And, you know, that – so it's it's not – yeah, it's a, it's a hopeful thing. Um, even though I think folks kind of there's something vaguely ghoulish feeling I think for the non-economists to hear about you know qualies and the number of life extension of BSL and it all feels kind of cold and calculating. But that's correct when you dig down into it. Some non-economic intellectuals find this whole exercise offensive, um, and but those of us that practice it respond. Well, what should guide decisions? You can't save all lives. You don't, you, you, I mean, this applies to how many fire stations should a jurisdiction have? How, what's the response time for an EMT? Should you spend, how much more should you spend to get the response time down from five minutes to four minutes, right? Should you build a station in each neighborhood or, but you run out of money, right? So again, all of this actually goes on, but it makes people very uncomfortable to talk about it. But I think you're right to point out it's not dismal. It's actually hopeful. I mean, it says try to avoid spending money on very stupid things that don't do much to improve life expectancy, even though there are various constituencies that believe that we should do so. And those particularly are on the, on the environmental side. So super fun sites, uh, the, the, the most famous one, Love Canal near Niagara Falls, New York, which started the so-called what's now called the Superfund EPA program, which is toxic uh, chemicals are buried in during the height of industrial America. There were 
they were not disposed of in very, what we now would call modern ways. They were just buried and dumped. They leach into the groundwater. And then, so what, how much does that matter? Do people really catch or, or, or are exposed to things and do they get cancer and other life reducing diseases because of that exposure? And the answer is a lot less than people think. So, so some Superfund expenditures and some workplace uh, exposure prevention programs have actually been found to be, say, very few lives and, and cost thus a, a very large amount of money per life saved, whereas things like uh, guardrails and Jersey barriers and children lighter, you know, not, not making beds and... Uh, children's uh, blankets to be fireproof. Those things seem to be very cost effective. Well, and there is the, I mean, this is true, whether we're talking about economics or uh, I know it's frustrating for wildlife conservationist types is that folks make these decisions intuitively based on what feels right rather than based on data. So in, in, well, in wildlife conservation, it's easier to raise money to save a cute and cuddly panda than it is yes. like a, a fly, right? Or in yeah. terms yes. of <laughs> economics, like people think, oh, you know, a life-saving measure that makes sense to me intuitively because I have one in my car is a seatbelt. My kids are on school buses. The school buses should have seatbelts. And that must be a cost-effective way of saving lives. And we know that actually isn't very cost-effective because of the nature of school buses and the high seats. You don't really need, you know, seatbelts are very expensive to add and it wouldn't save very many lives or, or some such. And But people make those decisions not based on data, but based on feel. And that's not necessarily, you know, our intuition is Correct. not as reliable as we as we like to think. Well, let me switch then to the pandemic, which is so we've described the, the VSL uh, policy context historically has been OSHA and EPA. It's been mm-hmm. workplace environmental regulatory interventions and the evaluation of them, as well as environmental and transportation, the traffic uh, safety measures that we have been describing. All right. So, right. so there's a VSL literature and then, a, and the number is right now in the United States. And again, VSL varies by the wealth of society um, etc. So VS, the number varies by context and country. But the best estimate we have now for the United States is about $10 million per statistical life. That's, in other words, expenditures below that are thought to be consistent with market choices that, that economists observe. That's how much people seem to be willing to spend to save a life in market settings. And much above that, people don't seem to in market settings. So the $10 million is a, a kind of guideline. So you should spend, certainly spend below that. That's cost effective. And then once you get an order of magnitude above that, that's probably not. So in the pandemic context, people have taken the $10 million number and there've been papers written that, uh, again, this London college uh, epidemiological model said that Moderate social distancing would save an estimate of about 1.8 million lives, right? Wow. Okay. So how much economic slowdown should we be willing to accept in return for saving 1.8 million lives? Because 
What social distancing requires is that all sorts of service occupations stop. Restaurants, opera, ball games, right? Any, any place where there's large crowds and they're in close proximity, those things need to be, uh, in effect, shut down through lockdown orders and also through just voluntary behavior, people will avoid those things. So if you multiply 1.8 million lives saved times $10 million per statistical life, you, you get something on the order of, of 17 to $18 trillion, <laughs> which That's is real money. <laughs> US GDP is only 21.4, right? So these early papers in April and March were suggesting that in effect, the a severe policy-induced recession would be cost-effective because of the calculation I just described, right? And so lots of economists have been, including Jeff and Ryan and I, have been scratching our heads about, is this really right? Is this? And, and so let me go through some of the concerns we had, which is the $10 million VSL number comes from job contexts in which uh, there's much smaller statistical risk than in a pandemic. So I'll give you, so the range of, we basically uh, observe the wages in different occupations depending on the mortality rate that occurs in that occupation with white collar jobs being on the low end and then coal mining being on the high end. But that variation is only uh, even for coal mining, the upper end of the U.S. occupational data, the annual fatality risk is only 0.02%, all right, 0.02. Whereas we think COVID is on the order of 0.2 to maybe as high as 2, and we're still in great dispute about what that number is since so we I don't have random sample of testing to actually know what the denominator is in a, in a COVID calculation. So at the lower end though, even at the lowest, most conservative estimate, it's about as dangerous as coal mining. Is that the, I mean, the riskiest occupations? Well, no, the, the COVID isn't probably an order of magnitude greater than coal mining. Right. But 0.2 right? to two, I mean, the lo- even the lower end of that range is, it has it's, you know, it's 10 times higher than, ah, coal, okay. than the annual fatality risk in coal mining. Right. Okay. And that's un- underground coal mining, not, yeah. not surface yeah. where people don't die because they're not underground. <laughs> uh, so, so the, the, uh, there's a paper by an MIT economist, Bob Pindyke says, well, wait a minute. If you can, you are we really going to spend two thirds of GDP? Is that really quote economically sanctioned? Right. Is that, should we give our blessing to that cost benefit calculation? And Pindyke said, well, the total U.S. wealth is $98 trillion. And if you divide that per capita, you get about 300000 per person. And that's a lot less than $11 million per statistical life, right? So in other words, if we spent $11 million to save the entire U.S. population, we'd run out of money. And so that gave him pause as to should economists really be saying, well, what should they be saying? So Jeff and I and, and, and Ryan have been scratching our heads and trying to read and think about 
what does it mean to scale up the VSL estimate to pandemic levels of fatality risk, which are basically an order of magnitude higher than um, the, the settings in which VSL are calculated? And we're still not sure. Um, there are papers that suggest, uh, to, to, again, to get in the weeds a little bit, that the probability, the annual f- uh, probability of survival in an occupational setting in the U.S. is is 0.99. And so we're, we're studying f- underlying fatality rates, right, that are no greater than, than, than 1%. Whereas uh, if you... Re- if survival probability goes to like only 0.5 instead of 0.99, it, people seem to be willing to spend much more than VSL. In other words, ironically, even though Pendike wrote a paper that said the VSL is calculated may be too high, it actually may be too low. Um, I've read a paper that says instead of if the survival probability to, an, to next year is only 0.5. In other words, if we were facing a real survival crisis, our willingness to pay wouldn't be $10 million per statistical life, but it would be 16 to 17. But again, that just makes the problem worse from a Pindike point of view, because yes, we'd be willing to spend that at the margin, but we would quickly run out of money because of a budget constraint, because there's yeah. only $98 trillion right. <laughs> worth of wealth. I mean, so at the old calculation, off the top of my head, at you know, ten million a pop, uh, ninety-eight trillion. I mean, you'd run out. You could only save what one in thirty, thirty-three people before you ran out of money. If that was, or I can't remember the exact number off the top of my head, but you, you, a very and if yes. you double that, yeah. then that's obviously it's, one in fifty, yeah. one in sixty people before you're out, and and tough luck. If we had to save everybody, we couldn't. Yeah. So, so it's okay at the margin when we're talking about small, relatively small numbers, you can spend more than you would, you know, uh, than yes, you would otherwise, we, but you, you can't scale that up in a sense. That's certainly our preliminary thinking is that, uh, and we're trying to write a paper that kind of you know, muses on these things and tries to come up with an answer, but we haven't got it yet. I don't envy you that task, Peter, because like all the data is still so unsettled. Like I, I saw on on Twitter uh, this week that um, the mortality rate appears for the last couple of weeks appears to have fallen to half a percent in, in some. I mean, the, the expected mortality rate, uh, uh, you know, from an infection is has gone to 0.5 where it was, you know, up closer to two in like New York City in March and April. And they're not sure why we, we, it, it doesn't matter whether because it's New York City versus Iowa. Does it matter because it's summer versus spring? You know, is the, the seasonality affect the the severity and the transmission of the virus? There's so much we don't know. One of the biggest things we don't know is um, what what should the number be in the denominator of that calculation, right? So death, but even, I was going to say the numerator is more certain, but notice if you dig into the weeds, and Jeff Myron has done this more than any other scholar at Cato, um, death certificate, death causality, right? What are causes of death? It turns out they're not there, to use the jargon, endogenous to the time, so there's lots of number. So once physicians are aware that a pandemic exists, 
what used to be called pneumonia is now called, oh, well, there's not just pneumonia. There's, we'll call it a COVID-related pneumonia. Well, have we done testing to know whether the person was COVID positive? Well, no, but we're going to, right? So that, so the lumping in of respiratory infections, that the notion, the classification system across time is actually much less consistent than you would think because we're all human and there's a, I mean, the, at a at time of death, the doctor is then charged with writing three things down on a form. And then those three things are, are related to what's going on. Uh, and so, so even the numerator, we don't, not sure, but then there's the denominator, which is what's the infection rate? Well, a third of, it's estimated somewhere between a third, being, that's a low estimate, and then a half of COVID infected people are asymptomatic. So they don't even know they have it. And thus they don't get tested, right? So the testing of the population needs to be random in order to actually create a denominator so that we can calculate the true infection fatality rate. And we may never know that. So anyway, I'm just, you, you're right. I, well, that, and that, on that numerator bit or denominator bit, the, um, that was the controversy over one of the, an early uh, Stanford study where they showed a very high prevalence, right? And there were people who criticized, I, I think correctly, the, the design. I mean, there was, uh, they put out a call for, do you want to be tested for whether or not you had COVID? But they got a very high. And they yeah, yeah. I, don't know, I mean, a quarter it, of the population had been, had, had been infected at that point versus I think a later study out of Indiana showed like a 6%. Theirs was more truly random, a, a random sample. They got a much lower number, but that's, that's a big variance right there. And some of the evidence a lot of, uh, comes from the cruise ship, the early cruise ship data where people were confined and thus the total population was observable. The diamond princess is where, Maybe some of our best data come from, but um, I guess I, I think I've read there are scientists who criticize inferences from that data set as, as well. So there's science and then there's digging in and then it gets more mysterious, right? So, I mean, it, it does sound, I mean, this gets into the debate over what should we do? Of course, like what is what was the appropriate cost efficient response to COVID? But then also, who should be getting to decide that? And I, I did detect a note of concern in your paper with Jeff and Ryan, which was right now we're leaving this solely to public health officials when they they might be good at figuring out. I mean, they might be the ones to look to to figure out the. Uh, numerator, I take it, or de denominator for you, which one now? Um, but they're probably not the ones who are the best equipped to determine, you know, something that an economist it needs to be called for. Or just right? ordinary or, uh, citizens. I mean, the, the question is, off the air before we started, you, you alluded to the, there are facts, but then we need a weighting function or historians uh, consciously engage in discussions about a weighting function in which some facts are more valued than others in a discussion of a narrative about history. Well, you can think of the same thing in, in a medical con in, in a decision about 
life and death and resource allocation, which is it's probably the case that people who go into public health basically care greatly about public health to the exclusion of other things. And they may uh, be, and, and in fact, their objective function may be to get COVID-related deaths, let's say, to zero. Um, and wow, okay, that's, I mean, so again, if you're a zealous auto traffic safety person, right, the National Highway Traffic and Safety Administration, they may care more about traffic deaths than anything else. And to the exclusion of, I, I could drive at 10 miles an hour, but I, it would take me so long to get there that I'm willing to risk more death in return for, for getting there sooner. The same thing on, on COVID, which is Jeff and I and Ryan wrote, um, you know, if you don't let anybody interact with anybody, that has costs of, above and beyond the strict reduction in income, right? The loss of measured economic welfare. There's just the welfare from not being able to see anybody, from not being able to see your grandkids or your partner or whatever. And the current way we measure costs doesn't count that. It's not part of GDP. It's not part of the measures of that economists use for income. So we were suggesting that even if these papers were correct that say you ought to spend $15 trillion to save lives, part of our $15 trillion calculation was all sorts of things that aren't counted in the $15 trillion. So the actual economic reduction you might be willing to to tolerate would be lower. Then you add in all this loss of freedom and that would get you to $15 trillion, right? And so the if you follow what we're trying to do. So, um, yeah, well, it's like there's a price, there's the price of preventing, uh, you know, a, I, I don't know, a 40 year old worker from going into his, you know, job as a mas massage therapist because of social distancing. He lost his job. That's lost revenue. There's also, though, what's not being measured by that is the amount that he'd be willing to spend to visit his grandfather in the uh, in a nursing home. Uh, but he's not now allowed to do so. But that that's a real loss that he'd be willing to pay for, but that's not captured by his employment versus unemployment. Correct. Yep. Exactly. Okay. That, so we were just adding, in a in effect, that there's all sorts of unmeasured things that ought to be in the waiting function, and we think that for some people they care a lot about those. And so, um, again, this, the the conflict in the United States over uh, whether to protest or not the various lockdown measures that uh, political officials have implemented, people will not agree on how they value those unmeasured things that we're describing. Um, and that varies by political affiliation. And then also maybe what, uh, the pop, you know, how urban or rural your, your own setting is uh, and, and things like that. So off the top of your head, I mean, obviously we don't have, you know, again, all the numbers are in flux. And so I'm not asking you for a, uh, you know, a specific uh, answer here, but off the top of our head, like in terms of public health interventions that are closer to the, you know, the sub 10 million, the, you know, the big lighter child burn down house preventer to the, you know, versus the OSHA requirement. Um, I'm, I'm just going to list a few interventions and whether or not they just kind of 
makes sense based on what you've been researching in terms of cost efficiency in fighting COVID. Um, I mean, it sounds like you're a skeptic when it comes to the kind of total uh, near total economic shutdown that we had back in March and April being worth it at least anymore. How about um, how about things like uh, shutting down uh, concerts, athletic venues, uh, big gatherings of people, musical concerts, that that kind of thing? Do you think that is a worthwhile um, expenditure? Yeah, I mean, people jumping up and down in a closed setting, yelling. <laughs> Um, uh, that, that's probably, I mean, given a, a respiratory disease, that's probably not a good idea. The, the question we don't, there are some estimates, but what, what research is going to try to figure out is how much would people do that or not do that on their own? In other words, once it's more and more people become, so, so trying to figure out the, how much of distancing results from policy per se versus how much results from just voluntary not doing that because you're scared. Uh, again, we're trying, papers vary as to how much the lockdown mattered or not. There's some estimates that it didn't matter much at all because people were just scared and going to stay home as long as they could and earn an income. So then there, we're back to uh, if you have to earn income, um, what do you do in, in, in these settings? And some people may face very difficult choices. You're going to be more tolerant of, of the risk if, you know, if, if you're, if, you know, if you need to make income. Um, well, there's, I mean, there's some evidence from that, perhaps from the Tulsa rally uh, this last weekend. Yes. Uh, you know, Donald <laughs> Trump's campaign. And, you know, there was this immense willingness to just make the costless signal that I'm interested in buying a ticket or not buying a ticket and getting a free ticket to a rally. But then when it came to confronting the actual risk of they didn't show exposure up. of yeah. people didn't show up. And I know there's some debate on you know, about whether or not it was TikTok teens sabotaging it, whatnot. But I tend to think more significantly. Um, it's lots of people who said, you know what? I don't think it's worth it right now to go to a giant mosh pit of people without masks and yell our love for a politician. <laughs> yeah. Um, correct. Except for the real hardcore. Correct. And in, in the fact, in a, in a, in the, the reddest of red state, I mean, Oklahoma's uh, support of Trump in 2016 was what? 80, 80%. Oh, crazy. Yeah. Okay. Highest in the nation, perhaps. That's why I mean, <laughs> so if I'm Trump, I, that's where I'm going to hold my rally, right? The, the likelihood of, of this venue being filled seems higher there than it would be um, in New York, let's say, uh, if it even if it were allowed. So the fact that only nine, I think the estimates are what only nine thousand instead of nineteen or whatever it was it's, able to yeah, hold. Yeah. yeah, that's no, it's uh, that's interesting. Well, and to your point, I mean, I remember seeing data early on, uh, which uh, someone went and. I think they used, I think it was open table, though I might be wrong about that, but they used a, a restaurant reservation booking. They collapsed, they were collapsing before the mandatory. Yeah. And so that would imply that the same thing would probably be true when you lift the, you know, and in fact, there's some evidence of from that from states that lifted their lockdowns that people didn't immediately go back to resuming their normal lives. I mean, some people did, but lots of folks said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to keep getting takeout. 
I'm not going to go sit down in the, you know, whether I'm in Texas or Florida or Arizona. Um, and so I think that's a, that's a, that's a good point to make. Um, okay. Well, so that's, that's, uh, yeah. So the interesting thing is that you, you can apply this to basically any government intervention. In fact, that was the, the purpose of a, the intellectual development of VSL was exactly with that in mind. In other words, in a non-market setting, what guide should government officials use in making their regulatory decisions? Uh, how much? Yeah. And that's that's exactly where VSL has been used, uh, but never in a kind of mass scale pandemic setting before. Right. We're, we're really testing the the system. <laughs> uh, uh, in this moment, um, what, what would you say in, are the low, you know, if you had to guess, what are the lowest cost interventions that you would, you know, the first things that, that should be part of our public health response to COVID-19? I mean, this is somewhat retroactively stuff we know now we didn't know then, but what are the things that come with a relatively low economic price tag, um, but seem to come with a relatively high uh, effect on fighting COVID-19 that you would say, you know, the Peter Van Doren seal of government intervention approval. <laughs> well, like, yeah, I mean, I don't, I mean, we could talk about how the whole view on masks has changed over time. And again, we're back to what do we really know? I mean, I, apparently there's scientists who are testing, you know, they, I've seen these simulations with UV light or something. And so you can, uh, you you put on various things on people and then you see how far their their uh, respiratory cloud through exhalation right how much it goes in space and then if you put a face shield on versus a mask and then then and they they colorize right these videos and so you see a plume of stuff that comes uh, so i saw one the other day on mass and it was all right well it doesn't go out the front so it leaks out on the side. And so then, so, so I, I don't know what I, I mean, I still think we're in the early stages of figuring out lots of things about, um, how, uh, how much respiratory stuff goes in space and whether it's the small stuff, the small particles or the large droplets and all of that's being we haven't done enough research in that because we haven't had a pandemic, right? And so um, now everyone's into that and we're figuring things out. And uh, I, I think the general view I have is for a respiratory pandemic, uh, reducing interaction with other people is useful. I mean, that's, again, that's just common sense. Where do I draw the yeah. line? <laughs> I don't, I mean, I've... I've gone out of the house to buy groceries and I've done nothing else. My wife hasn't left the house since March. And, uh, wow. but again, we're old, we're 60 something. And so right. we're, Higher we're risk, more yeah. worried. And, uh, when am I going to know, when am I going to feel more at ease to do stuff? And the answer is, I don't know. Uh, I'm, my guess is it won't hinge on what the governor of Maryland, I mean, purely <laughs> on what the governor of Maryland decides is, right? I yes. Mean, I'll give you, I, I uh, do have yeah. one thought of one thing I've read. Gina Collada is one of my favorite science writers. Um, 
She used to write for Science Magazine, and now she writes for the New York Times. She, the, one of the more interesting pieces I've read in the last three or four months is by her, and it was on how do pandemics end? And it was your point of view. It was not science. It was just people eventually decide to kind of go on whatever. In effect, there's a sociological or cultural end to pandemics rather than a real medical end. And we get used to or comfortable with a certain level of risk and we get, and that the death rate is raised and it's not what it used to be, but people kind of put their heads out of the foxhole and, and they look up and they kind of look around and they eventually in effect, sociologically declare an end to things, even though medically it's still actually going on, but at a reduced level. And, and, uh, so I found that informed that like what we're discussing today, the kind of scientific beginning and end of a pandemic may miss something. Um, I found her, her analysis to be uh, interesting. We'll have to put that in the show notes that, that does sound interesting and right up, right up our alley. I mean, we saw this with the, the great flu epidemic of 1918, which killed my uh, great grandfather. Um, which was a he was in Philly, which was one of the cities that got hit particularly hard because they took very few interventions early on. They had a big bond rally right at the height of the pandemic for like war bonds, and uh, so a mass spreading event. And so, anyways, it was a very hard hit city versus cities that put in place social distancing and uh, mandatory mask usage and the like. Um, but one of the things that they saw was across the board, at some point, even the cities that, you know, did, you know, government measures early on that beat the first wave, et cetera, or bent down the curve on the first wave, eventually the public's willingness to uh, put up with any kind of restriction just fades. No matter what you do, no matter how effective the restrictions are, at some point people just say, we're done with this. And so you always get a second spike. Now, how severe the second spike is, but basically every city in the U.S. had some kind of second wave or second spike once people just their willingness to endure uh, ended. And uh, But in some ways, that's – I mean from a public health perspective, that might be seen as a failure. It's more complicated though when you look at like people were willing to assume that risk. They were kind of tired of – uh, of that and and so it's kind of, it's complicated um but that's certainly true from the last time we had uh, a pandemic this severe um, and, and again and, uh, and we, it we is. talked right about 1968 it, it was it was real and fairly severe i think less severe than this one and yet wow it doesn't seem to have left any lasting <laughs> understanding yeah. Among, yeah. among anybody so Again, this the claim that wow, we're going to remember 2020 forever and blah blah blah, and it's like no, no, we're not. Uh, I don't think mm -hmm. so. Mm -hmm. um, just though, maybe we would have remembered the Hong Kong flu for a lot longer if they had taken severe measures and you know tanked the economy point. in '68. There and, weren't right. We were yeah. as I said, '68 was troublesome for other reasons, and uh, that's what. All, I mean, what his, everyone focuses on, I mean, all these books on 1968, right? It, I don't think they mention the flu much. They mention the Democratic Convention and the riots, and et cetera. 
it's very true. I mean, I'm a story of the sixties and it almost never comes up in, in the, the standard histories of the sixties. Um, I mean, the, the same thing though is true of 19 of the great flu epidemic, 1918, which in 1919, which is that, I mean, it's part of many people's family stories. Like I heard that story about my great grandfather as a kid from her, you know, his daughter, my grandmother, but it was not something people have actually commented on this historians have commented on this which is that it did not appear to cast some sort of correct long yes. shadow right. over people's memories yep. it kind of like there's not a lot a ton of novels and and it was a big films. deal i mean the death rate bigger was, yeah. it was that yeah. was and there really wasn't any medicine i mean med what we know nothing antibiotic nothing existed i mean people it was it was a big deal they're also taking place in a very different information environment too, though, which is like today we're all connected, right? Social media, Twitter. Well, maybe not. I know you're not on Twitter, Peter, but like there's <laughs> we're like the conversation, like you can't hop in a sense. Something can't fall as easily down the memory hole. Well, I, I would push could. back only a little bit in that. Okay. Um, the telegraph. I mean, I, I, the civil war was the first horrific event covered by photography and the telegraph and newspapers relied on the telegraph to give pretty instantaneous information. I mean, it was the telegraph was just an enormous shock to information conveyance. So 1918 is just radio is about to come on KDKA in Pittsburgh, I think is 1920, right? So the first, so radio did not exist, but the telegraph did. And then, Experience with the telegraph had been multi-generational and, and it was rapid. I mean, it was electronic. It conveyed information and newspapers were local, but they were all tied in by telegraph. So the, I would, I, if we could transport ourselves back, the, the information available to people who read newspapers, I think would have been much more instantaneous than we're giving credit for. Uh, well, if, it's not the speed of transmission that I'm thinking of here. I mean, you're right, and you know, ne never underestimate the power of 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 the rise of the telegraph and the transformative effect it had. And before that, the rise of of newspaper distribution, the way in which newspapers tied people together across the country and across the globe. So I don't want to devalue that, but it's not the speed of transmission I'm thinking of. It's the extent to which they're. Uh, so what we're describing is uh, the rise of a particular form of gatekeeper um, in the information, information gatekeeper. So in the 60s, unless the network news, less network, especially network television. Unless Walter Cronkite covered it, it didn't happen. <laughs> it, it didn't happen. Yeah. And I think Walter Cronkite probably didn't spend a lot of time on the Hong Kong flu. In 1918, d d are the so it's a little bit different there. You have a network of national, big national newspapers like the Chicago Tribune and then smaller local newspapers. Did the newspapers relying on the telegraph, you know, wire services, did they spend as much attention on 1918, on the, the flu epidemic? Um, obviously at the time they would have, but afterwards, you know, like in other words, there's kind of information gatekeepers that get to decide what help us decide what to remember as a society and what not to remember. And I've, suspect that there's less of that yeah yeah no and it, it, it appears that world war one and the the failure of wilsonian international institutions right the you know the the that that that's what we all hear about that era and you and i and 
high school and then college and right was that not not uh, so blame historians not no yet. i don't know <laughs> that's right yeah Wait, what what in doubt blame historians that's always a, a good rule of thumb We'll end on that note, which I think is a reminder that the response to COVID-19 really ought to be a multidisciplinary discussion. You know, we need epidemiologists to model the spread of the disease, public health professionals to suggest government interventions. But we also need economists like Peter to help us figure out which interventions are worth the cost. And, well, historians like myself to address the holes in our cultural memory and dredge up stories from the past that can help guide us in the present. There are folks from many different disciplines that should have a seat at the decision-making table now, but even more importantly, they should as we attempt to improve our response for when the next inevitable pandemic arrives, whether it be 10, 50, or 100 years from now. In any case, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Peter. He'll be back next time to talk about whether COVID-19 will induce mass de-urbanization of American cities. Until then, be well. This episode of Building Tomorrow was produced by Landry Ayers for Libertarianism.org. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, check out our online encyclopedia or subscribe to one of our half-dozen podcasts.